we spend a lot of time trying to pretty up our emotions and present a sweet and together face or whatever the hard edges are that we think that we need to sand off. And it's really down there in the muck that we find the most joy and the most flavor, the most connection. And it's messy and unexpected and unpredictable, which is all things that lead to discomfort. But boy, that's just where life happens. And it's in that place. Happy New Year. You're listening to Let It Out. I'm Katie Dalebout. First episode of 2022. If you're new, welcome. I'm so happy you're here. I started this this time, 2013. And who knew? Nine years later, I would still be recording my conversations with people, asking what I'm curious about, and then sharing it weekly for all to eavesdrop on. But here we are. And we're starting the year in a real high note with today's guest. You might love him as Charlie Conway in Mighty Ducks, as I did, or as Pacey Witter in the teen drama series Dawson's Creek, perhaps in the science fiction series Fringe, or the drama The Affair, or maybe in his Broadway debut in Children of a Lesser God. Or recently, opposite Reese Witherspoon and Kerry Washington in the miniseries Little Fires Everywhere. But for the next 75 minutes or so, you're going to fall in love with Joshua Jackson as himself. The Canadian-American actor is on the podcast today. We talk about some of his recent projects, including a series that he was actually just nominated for a People's Choice Award for. It's for his chilling portrayal of a real person, actually, in the series Dr. Death. And we also talk about becoming a new parent, which he and his wife Jody did at the beginning of the pandemic. We get into a conversation about avoiding feeling discomfort and sometimes using nostalgia to do that, romanticizing past experiences. We talk about you know, him coming into fame young, we get into anti-racism. It's a conversation that goes in so many different directions and I'm really glad I got to have it and that you get to listen to it. If you've been around for a while, welcome back. It means so much. If you're new here, like I said, welcome. And if you want to learn more about the show and me and my work, stick around at the end and check out the show notes. But now my conversation with Joshua Jackson. (laughs) Should have led with that. Okay. Well, it's so nice to meet you. Thank you again for doing this. And it's been nice chatting with you so far. So we were talking a little bit about the wildness of the last two plus years that we're all collectively living through. But I'm curious... And I know, you know, Omicron and the holidays, like you were saying, is is part of this. But I always like to start in the present of what's on your mind. What have you been learning or pondering in the last however long week or month? 
Well, I think being a new parent, the thing that's always on my mind is parenting and this amazing little brain and human that is daily emerging in front of my eyes. And so every day of my existence right now is in some way impacted by a surprise coming out of this little engine of happiness that's in our home. And I think for both my wife and myself, really trying to stay mindful of the stupendous amount of joy that has come out of being parents, even against the backdrop of all this craziness, because the craziness is is heavy, like you were saying. I mean, it's just there's a there's such a weight to being alive right now and an uncertainty that is certainly more acute than at any point that I've lived through before. And yet for us, the counterpoint to that is that we have this little human being who's just coming alive and meets every day with joy or occasional <laughs> outrageous anger. And squaring that circle psychologically has been the, the project of the last month, but really of the, of the last two years. How old is your baby? She's 19 months. Oh, wow. So she was born right in the... Right at the beginning, yeah. Yeah, wow. Which in some ways, again, it's this, it's this weird juxtaposition that we've been in. And I think this is probably true for a lot of pandemic parents. So the beginning of, a, of being a parent is essentially quarantine anyway. The baby doesn't have a, an immune system. So you keep the number of people that are in their presence to a, to a bare minimum, but also you're exhausted. The mother is recovering physically and you're, and you're both coming to terms with the wonderful and awesome responsibility of keeping a human alive. And the pandemic gave us the opportunity to, not gave us the opportunity, it forced us to be there present and focused in a way that would not, you know, in the, in the pre-pandemic normal course of times, it just would not have been available to, to us. At, at some point, I would have gone back to work, she would have gone back to work. At some point, I should say much sooner than we did, we would have gone back to work. And then we would have been trying to figure out that juggle. But instead, what we got was this raw unadulterated family time for almost every day for the first six months before I went back to work. And then shortly after Jody went back to work. And it's just an incredible gift to be able to spend every you know waking and sleeping moment with your baby in the very beginning. And now having gone through it, I will say that one thing that's on my mind a lot is just how cruel the the way we've set our society up for new parents is or for parents in general. Because the, the, now I, it never really crossed my mind how unnatural it is if you're in a you know a, a two parent scenario how unnatural it is to send one of the parents out almost immediately after the baby comes like back to to go and have to earn money to support the family as though either one of those parents could individually take care of the the home or be outside the home like it just you don't want to be away from the baby at all right and on the fathering side like you don't want to be away from your partner at all she's literally recovering from this massive event physical event beyond the emotional and spiritual portions of it that she's recovering from and we've sort of set up a society that says like okay well that's done moving on <laughs> and and you know she'll like mom will come into town or you're you'll hire somebody to be an extra set of helping hands and dad goes off back and earns some money and it and it's just an insane way to introduce people into parenthood. Yeah, I was just listening. There's a really good Fresh Air episode about the way we work and how the pandemic really shed a light on that and 
so many industries and you know those that are fortunate enough to be able to do their work from home and how the before Omicron, I guess the return to the office was looming and happening for people and returning to set or work in whatever way it was. And, and there was someone, you know, discussing this exact thing and just how broken the system is in with childcare and how it's such an important, exactly what you're saying. And I was thinking about my mom always talks about how, when I, she went back to work very, very quickly, like a, a wildly soon and had to put me in a baby cubbies. <laughs> like the childcare daycare was so packed with babies. And that always blew my mind of sometimes my grandfather would come to pick me up and like accidentally take the wrong baby. And just like, there's something around that, that seems, <laughs> you know, doesn't seem correct. <laughs> like we should yeah. be. It's just, I mean, we should be, but it's also just not an optimal way to organize a society. Right. Because because everybody's losing in that, right? The baby's losing because they're losing that time with their parents. But the parents are both losing because they're losing that time with their child. And also something I really didn't understand before becoming a parent, but you can't compartmentalize being a parent. So when your mom's back at work, it's not like she's okay, okay, I'm just gonna focus on this nine to five and then when I get home I'll work on it. It's like she's a mom now, right? Totally, yeah. And there's no way that a significant portion of her wasn't in like moment by moment stress thinking about what was going on with her baby. Even if you're just a couple floors away, it's just a silly way to go about things. Yeah. Because nobody actually gets like, it's a system set up so that everybody gets the worst outcome rather than some people getting the benefit, some people getting the bad outcome because the employers aren't getting the full employee. The employees are twisted up in knots because they don't really want to be there. The child's getting care, hopefully, but not the care, the optimal care. And occasionally your grandparent goes home with the wrong child. Right. And that's not good for anybody. <laughs> totally. Yeah. It's it's really interesting. And, and, it'll, and it will be interesting how the pandemic creates change in this, hopefully positively, or at least sheds light on this and so many other things. And this is a place I really want to like compliment the millennial and and whatever's behind it, Gen Z cohort because i think as in so many things of i don't think the pandemic is going to change things i think the pandemic it is going to tip things over that we're already changing yeah. and one of the things that gen x is like myself constantly complain about millennials and gen z people is like why don't you have the same self-abnegating commitment to work that we do right i sort of we we inherited from the boomers this well you just Go and do it, and it doesn't matter what the cost, you get the job done. And I think there's been a real movement towards like, actually, I think I kind of want to live some version of a balanced life or feel have some sort of satisfaction along the path rather than just grinding myself down to dust and then retiring. And I feel like that's that's my hopeful place coming out of the pandemic is suddenly, I mean, I've talked to so many people both on the entertainment side and there's more of square job nine to five side who when they didn't have to go to that office job or didn't have to be on set and they actually finally had a little bit of clear space right because we all run so fast and have for so many years run so fast so like our lives are overly full that there's not really the breathing room that you need to kind of take stock right you feel like you're always on a treadmill always on a treadmill 
And then suddenly everybody had to take stock. And for a lot of people, the answer was, yeah, wow, that's, that's not working for me. I'm actually, it doesn't matter the amount of money that I'm making. I'm not actually happy doing that. And you can't, you can't buy back that time. I feel like there is going to be a pretty significant shift away from the way things were. Even though I think that was already crumbling, I just don't see all those office spaces getting filled back up again with employees who are willing to do the hour and a half commute from wherever they live to wherever they work. I just feel like there's going to be a a major rethinking of what value actually is. And I think you're seeing this in a lot of the labor force participation and the like wringing of hands. Oh my gosh, why don't people want to go back to these shitty jobs where we don't pay them anything and treat them like shit? Yeah. <laughs> right. And there's a real, there's a moment now where people are going, you know, that's not a good deal. I, I, and I've been so buried in just trying to keep my head above water that I haven't actually stuck my hand up and said, I deserve better than that. And I think there's going to be a lot of that coming out of this pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. You can't unsee it. Right. Exactly. You can't, now that you've had the moment to sort of have that mental clarity, you can't pretend and go back in. I don't think. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of newness, you have a new, new father, newness of the pandemic. That we've, This is a little bit of a pivot, but I want to talk about your new project. Liquid Media Group helps creators keep ownership of their stories so it can help sustain them to be able to tell more stories, which I think is really, really cool. And can you talk a little bit more about it and why you wanted to be involved in this way? Sure. I mean, to what we were just talking about, actually, I think the entertainment industry is one of these places where a trend that was happening hit an absolute tipping point in the pandemic, which was the move to digital distribution, what we call streaming. And I started the company uh, with my, my original partners. And the original idea was solving for a problem that I had seen in Vancouver growing up in the industry, which was a lot of very talented people constantly in fear of the sky falling and them never be them never working again because they were only ever working on other people's material. And so that sort of rattled around in my head for a lot of years. It's like, well, this doesn't make sense. There's so much, there's so much talent here, and there's an infrastructure to actually do the thing. But ultimately, most of the work that's being done in Vancouver and most Canadian cities is service work for generally speaking, American uh, productions, but international productions. And there's a couple of reasons for that, that I think one is American appetite for risk, right? The, the truly incredible engine of capitalism down here, where people are really willing to take risks that seem far-fetched until they succeed, <laughs> which is just about every film and television project. But the other thing was a sort of a rentier economy it didn't make sense for the owners of the material to spread the ownership around to their employees because the system that they had was working perfectly fine. And without somebody else coming in and shaking up the broader system, that system would have just perpetuated. But the streaming services have completely changed the gatekeepers in the entertainment industry. So suddenly this idea that had been rattling around in my head, I could see a path to finding a profitable but equitable solution. And to me, the profitable but equitable solution is that I think that the, the ecosystem of any segment of the economy and the economy in general is better when more people are stakeholders in it, rather than accumulating all the, the power and the wealth at a 
very, very fine point at the top. I think things just work better. And the product, if you will, of that sector of the economy is better, right? With the more competition, the more ownership that is held in a, in a more diverse, broader group of hands. And so we started building liquid media to fill that piece for the entertainment industry. And it went through some permutations and it has been a certainly quite an intense educational experience for me. But then this moment of the pandemic happened and suddenly what we saw is a fast but inevitable move to streaming, which we thought was like a five or 10 year path, happened literally overnight. And the entire industry reorganized itself around the streaming revolution, which is great and does create more access and more opportunity, but it also creates an even more complicated landscape for creators to try and navigate. And so the need for what I think we are providing became even more intense. And we had our our debutante ball at, at the Toronto Festival this year. And the response was so overwhelming. It kind of bogged us down for about a month, honestly. <laughs> it took yeah. like just 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 fielding the amount of response of people like, man, we have been looking everywhere for something like this. Because the idea is not, honestly, I, I can't say that I think I'm particularly smart about this. It wasn't like a genius level insight. But the idea is is right from the very beginning of the Hollywood moment, which is to be able to properly produce these things, you need to have a bunch of different skills in-house, right? A bunch of different things that don't necessarily overlap that you can do. You need to be able to write it and you need to be able to finance it and you need to be able to actually physically produce it and you need to be able to edit it and do all the post-production and you need to be able to distribute it and monetize it. And it's just a lot for any independent, whether that whether you mean independent as like a single person or even for a small company, even frankly, for some pretty large companies to have all of those skill sets in-house is difficult. So we had an overwhelming response and we've been basically catching up to ourselves for the last couple of months. But I really believe that there is a, a moment in time now where because the old gatekeepers have sort of stepped out of the way and because there is this almost like wild west landscape of opportunity that there is an opportunity for the industry to still make lots of people plenty of money but to be slightly more meritocratic in the way that it sees projects from conception to distribution and that's where we want to be we want to be in that process of saying like yes we think you know this doesn't maybe fit the old studio model, but we think that there's space for this because audiences have been telling us for years and years and years, we want a broader, more diverse group of voices, both on screen and behind the camera, telling the stories. And we are willing to, to show up and, and spend our hard-earned money, be it in you know, buying it a la carte, being part of a subscription service. However, that transaction is happening. The audience's tastes, I think, have outstripped the imagination of the traditional entertainment industry to satisfy that taste. And so I think that there's going to be, I think we're only at the beginning of the, of, we're sort of at the end of the beginning of the first boom of, of content creation. And I think we're going to go into even another boom after this, as we come, whenever it actually happens, come out of the pandemic and we're able to work more efficiently across the industry, I think there's going to be another massive explosion in the amount of content that gets produced. So I think it's the right idea for the time. It's a very exciting moment. And it's also a lot every single day. <laughs> it's just yeah. so much to learn and so much to 
to keep on top of. But you know, if this ultimately is the contribution that I make to this industry that has been so good to me, I will be very happy. Mm, that's so well said. Wow, that's really cool. Well, congrats. And I'm really looking forward to seeing all of that you just spoke about. It sounds really important and correct for what the industry needs. Hopefully, knock on wood. And thank you. Yeah, yeah. Well, you have so many great projects in the works and in the past and in the future, I'm sure. And <laughs> like what you just spoke about. And I want to talk about a couple of them. And there's one from a couple of years ago that sticks with me. You made your Broadway debut opposite Lauren Ridloff in the show Children of a Lesser God, which is a show where you had to learn to speak, I think, three different ways. And there's this great TED talk that you do with your co-star about how you were able to find connection and understanding through vulnerability and the desire to be heard, which is really beautiful. And essentially what this podcast is about, about listening, connecting, vulnerably sharing, you know, I think we all want to be seen and recognized for who we really are and see ourselves in the media, like you were saying before, and in art. So I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about, did that experience teach you anything about listening and communication that has stayed with you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, the experience of having the ability to communicate stripped from me at, uh, when, how old was I when I first met Lauren? I think I was 39, maybe 38 or 39 years old. So a full grown adult. And to suddenly find myself at a place where I could not communicate without an interlocutor with my leading lady, right? My, my closest creative companion on that show. And that the only way for me to fix that problem was going to be to strip away my own ego and my own attachment to my ability to communicate with any complexity and essentially start language from the very beginning, right? I had to learn her language from the very, very, very top. And thank God Lauren is a, one, was an educator by trade, two, is just a nice person. So was willing to go through that journey with me and created so much space and, and showed me so much grace along that process. But also it took, you know, it, it is not pleasant being humbled all the time. And it took a lot to continually check my own ego and continually just keep showing up in this space of total vulnerability. And so much of, of the outcome of that has stuck with me. And I mean, it just, it's just, there's so much to talk about, but it, it, re, it completely reframed the way I think about communication and, and how language shapes thought and completely reopened my eyes to just the incredible amount of bias that I have absorbed over the course of a lifetime and is so deeply ingrained in me. Even when I'm trying to be conscientious about it, there are still just blind spots that I'm just not seeing and how harmful, painful that can be for the person that I'm not seeing in their totality. And just, you know, it gave me an, a real opportunity to be appreciative of the grace of another human being. I mean, Lauren left space for me, even though I was very often a Neanderthal 
in the ways that I was communicating, not just in the fact that my, my, my language was basic and I'm still honestly a pretty basic signer. So she still has to dumb herself down to talk to me, but also just the cultural assumptions that went into me that are, that are me, all the, you know, the things that make me up and some of the, the places that I would never have even considered myself to have been prejudiced or biased and then had to grapple with and thankfully had a woman who was like willing to meet me there and say yeah no you're you're this is awful and you need to examine this and I'll do it with you but mostly this is your work so I'm just going to show you that it's there and you do with it what you will <laughs> mm. wow yeah what a cool experience to to have and you know I think so much richness comes from vulnerability and there's a lot of discomfort in that and that's where a lot of growth comes and and a lot of connection i think and yeah i just that that whole experience of yours and then you know when i was preparing for this watching that that ted talk really was emotional and and beautiful and hearing you you speak about that project really was i loved that and I think it's true in so many spaces. You know, I, I heard you talking about your work within, you know, our systematic racism and social justice. And, and you were saying, you know, to a similar point, you said something like, until white people are willing to be in that discomfort, the conversation can't really move forward. So I think, you know, there's a, a connection there of like letting ourselves be uncomfortable to be able to move forward and create growth. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I 100% agree with that, right? The, well, I guess I 100% agree with myself, which is a very <laughs> actory place to be. <laughs> but I feel like we have somehow culturally pulled a fast one on ourselves that we talk about racism and, it, and this expands to the context of any cultural bias, but it's most particularly poignant, I think, in the discussion around race in America. We have somehow turned racism into a predominantly Black-centered conversation, which is bizarre when you see the, the, the subject of overt racism are non-white people in the US, right? But the perpetuators, the creators, the defenders of racism in America are white by necessity, right? So right. it is bizarre that we have excused ourselves from this conversation like, oh, well, there's there's those Klansmen, they're bad, that's racism, we don't need to do that. But ultimately, this conversation needs to center around how can culture help Black America or Brown America or non-white America? And I think that's a way for white people to let themselves off the hook of the deeply uncomfortable examination. And, you know, this was part of my experience of being on Children of a Lesser God was and I don't know that I would have had the strength to do this had it not been for the amount of grace that Lauren showed me. But the cultural biases that we carry, that are that are we become the product of the culture that we are raised in, are so deep and entrenched, and many of them so unexamined that being confronted with them feels like having a piece of yourself being stripped away. And that's a deeply uncomfortable place. And we also do not, we don't do a very good job particularly for men, of teaching us to be comfortable in vulnerability and discomfort, to feel strong in discomfort, that place of growth that you were talking about. And so 
mostly what I think we end up with is a ton of defensiveness or sort of hand-waving distraction to do anything other than confront the reality that's right in front of our faces. And so I firmly believe that until white people can get into that place of discomfort, really get into it, we are going to hold ourselves back from being constructive portions of this conversation, which, which means to me that we're in a Gordian knot because the solution to racism is white people stopping being racist. It's us. Like we created the institutions, we created the systems, we perpetuate them, we benefit from them. And so until we can have a conversation with ourselves going, mm, you know, we don't want this anymore, it will continue to exist. And there's no amount of nibbling around the edges that is going to change that until we are okay in that uncomfortable place. And I'm not sure that this is something that we're going to get to soon. I mean, the, the fact that seemingly the, the largest legislative change in the wake of yet another stream of executions at the hands of state actors is going to be not teaching children American history does not bode well, right? And that's just pure reactionary. That is us not wanting to be uncomfortable because there's no, no matter how much you love this country, and I think that you actually don't love this country very much if you don't want to learn all of its history, you may love a version of the country, but no matter how much you love this country, until you can confront the fact that it is like every other country on the planet, comprised of human beings, many of whom were deeply fundamentally flawed, and almost all of whom, right, the founding fathers, believed things that we would think are disgusting today. Right. And until you can get to that place, how can you like white America is just gaslighting the rest of America to try to say, well, yeah, but it, well, you've got to judge them by the times and you got to bullshit. We don't judge anybody else by the times. Right? That, that's just nonsense. You do not ju have to judge on a curve when you're talking about the humanity of a fifth of the fucking population. Yeah. There's no curve for that. That's a pass fail. That's a, that is a, to use the term a black and white issue. Right. You either are able to say that's awful, inexcusable. And even though that person may have done good in some other portion of their life, everything that they believe, all of their core beliefs are odious. And then you can have a real conversation. Right? But until that point, until we can get into that discomfort of, of saying the founding documents of this country were never intended to be as beautiful as they are, because they were intended for a very small group of people to consolidate their power as opposed to a foreign king. But they were accidentally the most brilliant living documents ever used to, to found a country on. And in the, the fullness of history, hopefully we will come to live up to their promise. But the promise is what we have discovered in them, right? As time has gone on, not in their original intention. Yeah, I think a lot of and myself included, so so much of the time, like we don't want to feel feelings we don't want to feel, and yeah. <laughs> we don't want to feel uncomfortable. So we do a lot of things to protect ourselves and ultimately change. Like I was saying before, is running into the fire and allowing ourselves to to feel uncomfortable and know that our, you know, our own comfort. My my friend Linnea Sims talks about this and does amazing anti racism work, and she says this line. Your discomfort as a beginner is not as important as human lives. You know, we have to <laughs> allow for, you know, like I'm sure Lauren, your co-star did with you, you know, understanding that you might say the wrong thing or, or do the wrong thing 
but moving through it to improve. Yes, Lauren absolutely created that space for me. And even in times where I didn't recognize she was creating the space and it took me time to catch up to to what was happening around me. But I think to add to your friend Linnea's point, something that, that rattles around ahead a lot is until we make racism a worse thing than being racist, we're probably not going to make much progress. And by that, I mean, we've made being called a racist such a scary, scary, scary place that the defensiveness that that picks up puts somebody into an absolute tailspin. Because you hear a lot of people talk right now like, oh, well, post me too, post George Floyd. I don't want to say anything wrong. I don't want to do anything wrong. I hear people say that. And I'm like, I don't think that's true. I don't think that you don't want to say anything wrong. It's that you don't want to say anything honest. Mm. You're actually worried that your beliefs are toxic. <laughs> And they probably are. But until you can get in the place of saying, yeah, I, there's some toxic shit in my head. Yeah. Right. Until you can be in that place. Like th this, I'll share an anecdote about myself and something really awful that I did to Lauren. And thankfully, she still speaks to me. But about a year into us knowing each other, I saw one of those cutesy videos on the internet of an infant getting a cochlear implant and hearing for the first time. And, you know, of course, it's presented like, oh, my God, look, the baby hears for the first time and all the adults cry and the baby's so shocked and everybody's so happy and it's beautiful. And so I saw it and I showed it to Lauren thinking like, oh, look at this cute video that I saw on the Internet of a deaf kid hearing for the first time. And I could see by the look on her face that I had just completely put my foot in it and I didn't quite know why. And when she calmed down, she told me, she's like, look, I get it for hearing people. You think I'm not whole. You think there's something missing from me. But when I see that, I see an, a child born totally complete who has just been put through a radical brain surgery to satisfy a bunch of hearing people who cannot see that baby as a complete baby without having all the things that they have. Yeah. Right? So it's just a radical dehumanization. And here I was in like a year into this very intense friendship right? Like, this is a woman that I love. You have to go into such an intense place and the language and the just everything that went into that was as intense as a work relationship as I'm sure I will ever have. And for me to have, like, to still not see it a year later told me a lot about myself and just how deep those biases are. And so I think that really applies to white people trying to navigate conversations around social justice or men now trying to navigate spaces around not just not being rapey, but like actually having equitable workspaces. And we've made the accusation of the thing so scary that it stops the conversation. Because honestly, I think we all need to sort of get right with the fact that we all have some ugly things in our heads, some very ugly things in our heads. And if you're not comfortable calling yourself a racist, that's okay. Just say that you're biased and you have prejudices. And until you can get to that place of like, there is no perfect human. They don't exist. Never did, never will. And culture changes. So even if you are perfect, it will shift again. And you need to be okay with the fact that a lot of the, I need to be okay with the fact that a lot of the things that I was taught, a lot of the pieces of culture that I absorbed that come down to me through generations are just toxic. 
they're awful, awful things. And the people saying them might not even know why they're saying them. These have been part of the culture for so long. I mean, it's we all kind of know this because if you or I watch 10 movies, cherished movies from our childhood, eight of them will contain things that are so smack you in the face wrong now that you're like, holy shit, how did I not pick up on this? But the truth is you did. You filed it away somewhere. It went into your being, right? It became a part of who you are. And we do this all the time with pieces of culture, right? With film and TV of like, well, you know, yeah, it's a little uncomfortable because haha, racism or haha, sexism. But, you know, it's just the times that they were in. When I think a much more constructive way to say it is like, I can still enjoy this, right? I can still see the piece. I can still have a sense of nostalgia about it and still say, even then, it was fucked up to be racist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, do, to say that the founding fathers should be given a pass for slavery because it was the norm of the time, bullshit. Gross. Yeah. Yeah. yeah bullshit. Really right. Bad. Like, you, yeah. it's really bad. You are making an excuse for at any given yeah. time in human history for a human to look at another human and be like, you're not of me, right? Yeah. I'm better than you because of X, Y, or Z random reason. And we've created a whole scaffolding of society and structure and institution on top of that fallacy. And until we can get right with that being a fallacy, right? You don't grade that on a curve. There's no curve. It's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So well said. And it, you know, it's all about, we don't want to feel discomfort. So we turn to we we shut it off like you said shove it down somewhere it wasn't that it wasn't there and it's it's everything it's it's racism it's you know mental health schools trying to change people Mm -hmm. to fit into something so much fat phobia and body shaming and you know it's 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 everywhere today's episode is brought to you by truebill do you know why free trials renew without your consent It's actually, this is a bummer, but it's a business scam out to get us, apparently. And it's greedy corporations that are pocketing our money, which is a real bummer. It's a real downer. However, if you download Truebill, you can take control of your subscriptions and it makes it really, really easy. Truebill is a new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions that you don't need or want or simply forget about if you're me. On average, people save up to $720 a year with Truebill. Wild. Because companies make subscriptions hard to cancel, Truebill makes it simple. It's just a link and you link your accounts to Truebill and they cancel your unwanted subscriptions in just one tap. And your Truebill concierge is there to help you out if you need any help canceling subscriptions that you don't want to have anymore. I really love Truebill and I, you know, this will shock no one, have trouble managing my subscriptions, don't even really know what I have and when they're expiring and it's a mess and Truebill really, really helps. And it's not just me. They've helped over 2 million users to save over $100 million. And perhaps they could also help you. Listen to this. Matthew said that in a matter of seconds, he saved $600 for the year for his TV bill, another $120 for his radio Sirius XM bill, another $840 on his car insurance. 
congratulations to Matthew. And perhaps you, if you also try Truebill with me. Don't fall for subscription scams. Start canceling today at Truebill.com slash let it out. Go right now to Truebill.com slash let it out. It could save you thousands of dollars a year. Truebill.com slash let it out. Those thousands of dollars you could then donate to a cause that could be really, really grateful and that money could be put to use. So try out Truebill and let me know how much money you save. We're all really inundated with email right now. At least I am. And it's no longer about responding to everything. It's about responding to the important things, the messages that truly matter. And that's where SaneBox comes in, today's sponsor. Think of it as EMT for your email. So as messages flow in, SaneBox does some triage for you, sifting only the important emails into your inbox and directing all the other distracting ones into your sane later folder so you know which messages to pay attention to now and which ones you can get to later. It also has a lot of really nifty features like the sane black hole where you can drag messages from annoying senders that you don't want to hear from again and sane reminders to ping you if someone hasn't replied to your email by a certain date. That one's really helpful for me. And best of all, you can use SaneBox with any email client or phone anywhere you check your email. You don't have to make a new thing. It's really, really easy. See how SaneBox can magically remove distractions from your inbox with a free two-week trial. Try it completely free. Visit SaneBox.com slash let it out today to start your free trial and get a $25 credit. That's SaneBox.com slash let it out. Do you listen to the podcast Invisibilia ever? Every once in a while. Actually, one of the most fascinating things, I'm pretty sure it was on Invisibilia. One of the most fascinating things I've ever heard. Did you hear? I think it was on Invisibilia. I might be wrong. But if it was, did you hear the one about the young man who had been in the coma for, I think, like 17 or 18 years, maybe even longer? No, no. So the young man, and I'm sorry to jump on your point here, but this story has stuck with me because it's just the most insane thing. So. I'm going to butcher the details because it's been years since I heard this. But in his youth, a young man falls into uh, a coma, some some extremely rare, undiagnosed genetic disease, rears its head. And the family, against all medical advice, says, no, we're, we are going to stay with our boy. We're not unplugging him. We're just going to be here and be of care. And he goes through his youth, his teendom into his, I think into his early twenties. Oh my God. And a friend of, of one of the other children of the family takes to speaking to him and kind of builds this one-sided, not physical, but in some ways romantic relationship. And then he wakes up. Oh. And he had been there the whole time, conscious incapable of communication, not always present. His description of it is amazing, but eventually her voice became the light and the darkness that led him back to consciousness. Wild. 
someone should make a movie. And it is. Yeah. It's one of, I mean, honestly, that's why I was like, this is the most insane with the human animal is just the most incredible thing. But yeah, I mean, I, I, am not above saying that I had to pull the car over when I was listening to it. Cause I was like, well, I'm just going to sit on the road here and cry for a second. Yeah, Cause this is just totally. the most intense story I've, I think I've ever heard. But anyway, you were saying, yes, I listen well, to Invisibilia every once in a while. <laughs> yes. Yeah, same. I'm, I'm like a once in a while listener as well, but I, I, as you were talking about this to, you know, our point about not wanting to feel discomfort and what you said about content that we liked from the past. I even think about it. Like I, I always jokingly say like ways I messed up in relationships. I blame on like watching too many romantic comedies of the <laughs> early 2000s, you know, and like yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's in there somewhere, you know? So it's all, it's all in there. And this episode, like you, I don't listen every week, but it was sent to me by upwards of like four friends because the topic was about nostalgia. And I have this joke where I say I have nostalgia disease like i'm nostalgic you know i'm a writer and i i'll be nostalgic for the moment while i'm in the moment i'll probably be nostalgic for this later you know and so <laughs> this episode was really good and i'll send it to you talking about nostalgia and apparently it was thought of as an actual physical disease for these swedish soldiers in the 1600s and this medical student who was 19 years old I don't remember the exact details because I also was was driving. <laughs> but basically, the point is they like take nostalgia through time. And then when they realize it's actually not a physical disease, it's something that we we feel in this way. And they they get into that more pretty much cut to the end where up to recently capitalism and marketing gets to it. Right. When they're like, this isn't that bad. So let's monetize it essentially, which was so interesting. And, you know, I always love the way the playwright Richard, Richard Greenberg talks about nostalgia. He has this line where he says, it's nostalgia is longing for a time you knew you could survive. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's us like, you know, since the pandemic, even more so collectively pulling towards revisiting content from the past with all these reboots and reunions. And it's stronger than ever for that exact reason, I think, you know, of wanting to not feel our uncomfortable feelings and move forward. And I'm curious, like so a lot of that includes, you know, some of your early work with Mighty Ducks yeah. and um, Dawson's Creek, you know, and projects that, you know, I'm sure everyone would love reboots on or, you know, and, and projects that are so meaningful and, and meaningful to so many of us and, and me included. So I'm curious, are you a nostalgic person? Do you have music and TV and movies and food and smells you oh, get yeah. nostalgic for? I mean, I live in my childhood home. I'm deeply nostalgic in ways that I <laughs> I discovered pretty early in my... So I'm a child of divorce, single parent. My father basically left the scene after my parents got divorced. Oh, so I'm too. skipping over Oh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it forms you in many different ways. Right. And there's lots of us out there. I think there's yeah. probably more of us out there than there totally. are the alternative. <laughs> yeah. And in some ways, I actually am. Well, in the specific case of my father, I'm quite happy with my mother's decision <laughs> to step away from that relationship because ultimately it was good. But you, you know, there are, for me, there was a, a, a moment of ease and peace which is centered around this home. And I went back and bought that home when I started making money in my early 20s. And I've lived there. I mean, I don't really live anywhere because I'm an actor, but that has been my home for the last 20 years. So yeah, I'm a deeply nostalgic person. 
And I think that I have a slightly more rosy outlook on the function of nostalgia in as much as as a pit stop, I think it's actually a very helpful, safe place to go. The place where I think it goes wrong is where it starts to meet with idolatry or you try to like, I don't, I can be nostalgic about my own early childhood and my recollections of it as this moment of peace and calm. But in my adult life, I can also look back and be like, oh, this is when my parents' marriage was falling apart. Mm -hmm. And that house was absolute fucking chaos. And to the point that my mother had to make a very deeply, deeply uncomfortable choice of like, I'm taking two small children on my own with probably no support. And she was correct in that. And I'm going to take this massive burden because that's a healthier place for me and for these kids than being inside this house. So I don't have any delusions about that being a better time. We do this culturally all the time. Like there's a whole swath of the, of the country that like wants to go back to quote unquote simpler times, which is a pretty interesting reading of history, right? Like you have to be a very, very specific person to go back in time in this country or North America, I'm Canadian. So North America's history for it to be a better time for you. <laughs> do you know yeah, what I mean? Right. Like, unless you're a land holding white man, there really like, there wasn't a better time than this. And this time is deeply, deeply flawed, but it is a very weird thing to me when you hear people like, oh, you know, I wish I could go back to X era or the, you know, the 1950s when things were simpler. It's like, things were not simpler. Things were fucking awful for most people, a very small group of people who also got to like make the culture, set the advertising, who got to tell you what that was. Those people, it was great for, but for most everybody else, not so much. Yeah, and it's it's interesting too to to think about our our past and we romantic like my brain goes to romanticizing things where I look back at a relationship or a project and an uh, you know an era or an outfit or something and in the moment it wasn't actually that great right like we right. right. you know like doctoring in my brain that actually if I really sit down or like went back in time in a time machine. It's funny when I was preparing for this, I, I typed your name into YouTube and I spent so much time with you in your old interviews. It was a real delight. And I found myself on your SNL monologue from 2003. My Lord. And do you remember doing that? <laughs> I remember doing I have. I literally don't remember one word that I said, but I, I in my genes feel, I, I remember the emotional experience of standing on that particular stage as an SNL fan, as a young man delivering an opening monologue but i i was in a i was like i was basically blacked out i was yeah. so keyed up on anxiety and nerves and excitement mm, well okay well i will remind you because it's fresh in my mind you did great congratulations <laughs> okay, from 20 Phew. some years ago um <laughs> but it, it's actually relevant because you were talking about how there are people who don't know you, like you were, you know, you're like, Hey, I'm this, I'm this teen star and you may not know me comparing. I forget who you compared it to, but you gave several references of what, you know, the older generation would think was cool <laughs> at that time. Right. And the musical guest, you might remember this was NSYNC. NSYNC. Yeah. Yep. And so then you gave like the, you're like, you might not know these guys, but let me tell you, it's like, whatever, whatever. And that really speaks to what we're talking about about nostalgia. And, and and then after I watched that, I watched all of these late night appearances and it just, 
it was, I, I was feeling nostalgic too, of just what that time period must've been like, what, what, what did that feel like? I know it was so long ago, but navigating fame at such a young age. Well, I mean, the, it's a very, well, I want to pick up on something that you said, cause I think it's, it, it actually, it's a really good thought. Like the place that nostalgia goes wrong is when it meets romanticism. I think it's a survival mechanism because I will tell you that talking to my wife now about the experience that she went through that was childbirth for her and the intensity of that, she describes a sort of a, a dissociative memory with the actual pain, right? Which mm -hmm. to me is so interesting because I watched this woman go through what even from the outside was the most tremendous thing I've ever seen. Like the psychological, emotional, spiritual places that you have to go to bring a child into the world as a woman is, is extremely intense. And then that six months later, her brain had just basically packaged that up and was like, eh, let's put a couple layers of gauze over that. And we're just going to put some of this away. And I think we all do this, right? Yeah. To, and I think you do it more intensely based upon the intensity of the pain, right? You have a tendency to put more layers of polish on the things that are the most painful because a lot of those relationships that you remember now is like with some fondness really sucked, right? Or were truly toxic in yeah, the moment. Fully. And we all do that, right? So I think it, that romanticism part is a big piece of where we go wrong with nostalgia, just to pick up on something you were yeah, saying. But yeah, for, for me, when I, was, when I was that age, I didn't actually really, there were pieces of it that I enjoyed. So I don't want to pretend like it was all shit and misery, but I did not actually really enjoy that moment of fame because I felt more than anything during that time of my life like an imposter and it's just a wild I don't know what your what your upbringing was like but mine was not hard but not easy and we came from you know people who had to work for a living to survive and that was everybody that I grew up with as well that's such a and, good way of saying it. Not hard, but not easy. I'm going to use that. <laughs> yeah. The, yeah. It is that mine, mine is not a sob story, but it definitely okay. had its bumps and bruises. And that informs your worldview. And also, you know, my mother is a deeply political woman and deeply feminist woman. And I grew up in a, in a very liberal place. So all of those sort of politics were just part of my upbringing, right? Very pro-labor, pro-work, pro-egalitarianism, and pro-woman. And suddenly I found myself in this place of being some idealized, romanticized version of everybody's boyfriend, which I definitely did not feel at 19 years old, 20 years old, and also making money that was at the time for me, like an inconceivable amount of money. I started making in a month what my friend's parents were making in a year. And that was it was more anxiety inducing than it was enjoyable, which is not to say that it, that there weren't pieces of it that weren't enjoyable, but mostly the experience was just constantly feeling like a fraud. Yeah. I can imagine that being really discombobulating. Yeah. Cause it rips you out of your cultural con. Also, I went from living in Vancouver to living in Wilmington. So I'm ripped out of my cultural context. I'm ripped out of my socioeconomic context. I'm suddenly not just like, child actor famous i'm like uh 
uh, teen heartthrob teen heartthrob famous yeah i don't know what the parameter is but but it just it. it went it went to a different there was a level of hysteria around it yeah and also the you know i had been thankfully i had been working for long enough to already have been dissed by a lot of the people who suddenly thought i was very cool and i definitely hold grudges so I was also thrown off by the fact suddenly like all these doors were opening up for me. It just all felt tremendously fake, right? Like I didn't change in the last six months. So why are you treating me so differently? And yeah, just all, all of those things, like it very much felt like I did not earn this and somebody's going to call bullshit on it sooner rather than later. And it's all going to come crumbling down. What helped ground you through that? I mean, you've turned out great and you know, everything you've said here has, you know, you seem wonderful and you're doing such an important work and you've worked throughout and done so many great projects. What helped you get through that? Time. One thing that money does buy you is to, is time at a certain point, right? The thing that we started the conversation talking about people's general ability to take a deep breath and take stock of their life is something that's afforded to you with either a pandemic or in my case, the luxury of not having to work paycheck to paycheck. So I got to examine myself in my post Dawson's Creek in the, in the first couple years out of that and really had the luxury of doing that rather than just having to go back to a, a nine to five and sort of get on the treadmill or frankly, I, not even luxury. I think a lot of people stay on the treadmill because they don't want to have to do that examination. And then, yeah, yeah, just it's, I will take the compliment because I like who I am at 43, but I, I think I'm still in the process of becoming. So I think it's also, there's a certain amount of grace that you have to have for yourself, right? Of forgiveness for the ocean of things that you just don't know, and you're still trying to figure out and that you're going to have to do it on your own time. There aren't mileposts for personal development. You just have to, you just have to keep on going. And then yeah, I think I was raised inside of a, a, a very healthy mix of things. And in the places that I was most stuck, it took the, this probably going to hit, did your mother stay or your father stayed? I lived with my mom. You lived with your mom. So mm -hmm. it took me forever to realize that I was worthy of being loved, which is an extremely heavy thing to say, but and I didn't even know, I wouldn't have been able to even articulate that for most of my life. But the rift of being rejected by one of my parents, even though it was ultimately a healthier environment, I think, for me to be raised in, how I internalized that was a deep sense of unworthiness of love. And so I was raised inside of an environment that pushed me to ask uncomfortable questions of myself, right? That, that, you know, this was a part of the household that I was in, but also the community that I was in, you know, even boys were asked to confront themselves in a way that I think is, or I'm finding is pretty unusual. And so I was, I then had the tool set that I needed, if not to get to the root of the problem, to at least ask the question and seek help. And I think that's the, that has served me in great stead over the course of my life. Mm. I'm laughing because that just really hit me hard. It hit me so hard. My headphones just fell out. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I, that, that was really heavy, but really got right in there. What you said about worthy of, of 
being loved. And I, I think sometimes I, all the therapy, all the quietness of the pandemic and elsewhere, it's, it's in there. And, and I think you articulated something that I hadn't. Anyway, um, <laughs> thank you for sharing that, that I really appreciate that and found it really helpful. And my last question for you then, I guess, is you've played related and we've been talking about romanticism. So with that, you've played, like you said, so many romantic characters from the very beginning and you got married right before the pandemic. And I always ask people their greatest lesson on romantic relationships. And I'm curious to ask you that too, what you've learned, you know, if, if you've learned anything from all the different characters that you've played and what was projected onto you and the relationships you've been in. Yeah, I guess just if you have anything else to, to share with that, but I think you maybe gave us the best one out just now. <laughs> <laughs> My marriage to Jody couldn't work if I didn't at least have the consciousness that I was worthy of being loved like that. Even though it rears itself, you know, that that thing doesn't ever go away. You just find different ways of of exposing it and letting it into the light. But I also think that this kind of encapsulates the totality of what we've been talking about. I think that it's either a twist in my personality or it is the product of how I was raised. But the to me, the the most fun piece of being human is the discomfort place. Stories are pretty and they're so much a part of how we communicate with each other and how we keep our histories alive and, and how we come to know ourselves. And that's all well and good. But the variety that is being alive is unmatched, right? There's no, no, I, no matter how compelling a story is, it doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of, of human complexity and emotion. And it's actually in all of that mess there's just so much love and joy and beauty down in the mud, right? We spend a lot of time trying to pretty up our emotions and present a sweet and together face or whatever the hard edges are that we think that we need to sand off. And it's really down there in the muck that we find the most joy and the most flavor, the most connection. And it's messy and unexpected and unpredictable which is all things that lead to discomfort, but boy, that's just where life happens. It's in, it's in that place. Mm, yeah. Why, why else are we here? If not to run into the fire and feel the discomfort and it's so beautiful and, and live, right. Yeah. And live. I mean, that that's ultimately it is like we can spend a, a lot of time sort of putting on the facade of life. You know, Instagram didn't do this to us, but it's an outcropping of what we think about ourselves, but you know, we can build the Instagram life, which that desire has existed I, maybe forever, I don't know, but for a very, very long time, right? They're like, look, I have all these external trappings of a decent life. I must be decent or a happy life. I must be happy. And the rot at the center of that is that, you know, if the foundation isn't strong, then the facade will eventually crumble. But also life is actually then passing you by. It, it's something... This is partially just because I'm not a millennial, but it drives Jody crazy. I never take pictures, not because I don't like taking pictures, but because it just never occurs to me to like pick up my phone and jump out of a moment and, and snap a photo, which is a problem because I have a very cute baby. So she needs to be photographed, but Jody does a yeoman's work on that. So, but life is happening in that moment. 
And as much as it would be nice to record it and have that that nostalgic recollection, being there in the moment is actually where you're going to find the joy and the sustenance to carry you through whatever the next unpleasant moment is. And we don't culturally make space for that. We're constantly, you know, we have a very keeping up with the Joneses culture and, you know, a very like patrician rat race work ethic. And it's like, no, nah, not really. Like who gives a shit about your gold watch and who gives a shit about your career track and who gives a shit about you, you, like the cohort that you came out of high school or college with, they're doing X, Y, or Z thing. Like that's not your fucking life, right? Like, are you happy? And, you know, maybe you are being lazy. Maybe your mom is right. Maybe you need to get your shit together and like go do something. That's possible. But it could also be you're figuring it out at your own path. And I, if world history has told us anything in the last 20, 30 years, like everybody who's telling you that there is a way is lying to you, right? We, we do not live in normal times. We live in totally abnormal times. And there is no, there are no guideposts. There's no guide. There's no map. Everybody is just figuring this shit out as they go along. So you might as well actually be enjoying as much as you can now, right? Running into the fire, living a little, making mistakes, becoming a better person, finding things that make you happy that are not toxic to other people and live because all the old ideas of what a quote unquote good life are, they've just been shattered and they're not coming back. Yeah. I was going to ask you, I mean, I have about 100 million more questions I was going to ask you, but one of them was like, and something that I ask in these, you know, we usually do rapid fire questions at the end. And, you know, essentially what you're saying of, you said a couple of minutes ago that you're still becoming, which I think is so beautiful. And I, I often think of like, hopefully we'll be the most self-aware, like right before we die, you know, like we're all <laughs> constantly becoming and, and learning to be better at, at being ourselves. And Within that, with you know the the theme of this conversation that we're, we've been volleying back and forth has been this theme of navigating the uncertainty and feeling the uncomfortable feelings. On the other side of that is good, and that's great. Whatever. However, how do you take care of yourself within that, and how do you you know when you're feeling overwhelmed or stressed or having a shitty day, like what do you turn to? And that's usually something I ask, but I think you kind of covered it there of like the, it was so beautiful how you said it, like the good present moment that you observe and are there for in a real like Ram Dass sort of, you know, <laughs> be here now sort of a way. That's it. Like that's the thing that can get you through to the next tough moment and not tapping out of that is, is remembering, remember not needing nostalgia, you know, like being there, I think I heard something. It's just coming to me right now. I think I heard something about nostalgia. Have you heard this or did I make this up? Someone said, if you're feeling nostalgic, it means you weren't present when you were there the first time. <laughs> if you're just making it up, that's an excellent thought off the top of your head. I don't, I'm not going to take credit for it. I am guarantee <laughs> I'm plagiarizing it from somewhere and someone will tell me. It's definitely not my thought, but I don't know. There might be some truth to that. Yeah. I mean, look, that... It has the air of truthiness to it. But I think as you were saying that, I remembered something, a thought that I had at a, as a young man, and I'm going to take credit for it, but it may have been somebody else's thought. Because one of the ways in which we, I, everybody, it seems like, wind ourselves up into knots is, and this is like a very Catholic thing, the, the comparative suffering or the comparative joy, which is, you know, like, well, 
you think you have it bad, but look at this poor unfortunate and what they have to go through totally. thereby, thereby yeah. your, your feelings are not valid, right? Mm-hmm. And so one of the antidotes to that nostalgia thing, yeah, it might seem trite to somebody else that you're just sitting here, you know, watching the, the ducks eat bread. But if it's making you happy, it has value, right? It's, it's of worth and you don't need anybody else to validate that. That's your experience. Right. It doesn't become more or less if it gets 10,000 likes or if there's somebody there to share it with you. If it is bringing you a moment of peace or calm or happiness or a gateway to sadness because you need to get some shit off your chest, that's a totally valid experience for you. And you can own that. That's okay. And what made me think of that was this thought that I had when I was a kid. I was in this conversation about perfection and it occurred to me like, actually, I think I kind of hate the concept of perfection. And I think I hate the concept of perfection because in my head, perfection, which is something that is locked in place, the total distillation of a thing into its perfect form is death. It's the end because mm-hmm. there's, there's no more growth. There's no more life. There's no more change. It's crystallized into the moment of perfection. And that's just not life. So I think it allowed me to give up on this chasing of the perfect thing because it's actually an anti-human way of going through your life, right? We don't have perfection ever until we're dead. And then whatever we die as, then that's it. We are our perfect selves, (laughs) unchanging forever and ever from that moment on. But up, up until that point, there's possibility. And possibility is everything and it's good and it's bad and it's left and it's right and it's sideways and it's up and it's down and that messiness is where life is happening and that to me has been a way that i have got through some of the stickier places in my life of like i'm twisting myself judging this against some platonic ideal of whatever it is that i have in my head and that thing doesn't exist right what i'm actually experiencing is this and this is what it is and and that is the truth of it because it's right here in front of me Yes. And it's creative too. You know, I think Deepak Chopra said happiness is divine discontent because it leaves room for the creative impulse. And I think what Mm. you're describing is anything that's static, like if you're too rigid, like a tree branch, you break, you know, you need Mm -hmm. some flexibility. And I think that's so true. You know, something we always talk about here is creativity and lessons on that. And I feel like this piece speaks to that as well of whenever you're thinking about an audience or second guessing an audience or trying to be anything that anyone else wants, you miss what feels good to you, like watching the ducks and feeding them bread. And that kind of builds up in an emotional bank, I believe. And bringing that to a creative project gives room for that's the, that's why we like live music and live theater is like mm-hmm. the you know being able to to see humanity and vulnerability uncomfortable <laughs> here we are again <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and we collectively and individually know these things and yet we we do so much in our lives to go the opposite direction and i don't know why we do that yeah did Playing that, sorry, this is just one last thing I thought about with with you talking about like how we contain multitudes and these dark parts of ourselves and and processing that and and owning that to grow. Congrats on your Critics' Choice nomination for the show, Doctor Death. But playing such a dark character, 
did it feel like that was cathartic in any way for processing some, you know, and I'm just curious, like how you took care of yourself through that? It was, I don't think it was cathartic vis-a-vis the pandemic, just because we were still early in it and maybe in some subterranean way, but I, I wasn't conscious of like, oh, this is nice to be able to get all this angst off my chest. It was just a very dark place to to live. And and he he lacked really any human empathy. And so to go into a space where every day your your main mission is to like have an inhuman response to very human pain was a emotionally quite an intense place. But the way that I took care of myself that I would come home and I had a little baby who mm-hmm. did not give a damn what had gone on and just greets you with joy and love without expectation. It's just such a pure exchange of emotional intent at that age, even at this age. I mean, it, I'm sure layers of complexity become manifold as she gets older, but like her openness and her warm heart is pure. There is no filter. There's no nothing, whether if she's happy, she's happy. If she's sad, she's sad. And even though she's learning it a little bit, there's very little guile, right? It just, she is just acting on pure impulse. And so what you put in is what you get out. And that is the perfect antidote to being in a place without empathy is to be in a place of pure empathy. I'm so glad you had that to come home to. That had to be such a challenging place to be. Well, congrats again for the award. I mean, it really, the nomination, it really had to be so challenging and especially after talking to you now and you're so lovely. So thank you so much for everything and you're incredible. This was a really delightful conversation. I, I really, really appreciate it. The The show is called Let It Out. So is there anything that you never get to talk about that you wish that I would have asked that you want to let out? Anything that you still want to share? No, but I will. I'm going to end with a compliment because you've been very complimentary with me and I'm Canadian. That makes me uncomfortable. So <laughs> This was a, a tremendous and lovely conversation about things that I very rarely get to talk about as an actor and as a man and as a white person. And I really want to thank you for giving me the forum to get into this and discover some pieces along the way. Oh, thank you so much. That's really, really nice. And I'm Midwestern and, and also feel similar. <laughs> we're very close to Canada there in Michigan. <laughs> yeah, no, but I will take it and, um, and like ride the dopamine hit of that all day. So it really means <laughs> a lot. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, we end taking a deep breath together. Will you okay. do it with me? Absolutely. Okay. Inhale. Let it out. <sighs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great rest of your day. I loved this conversation. Thank you so much for listening. If you've been listening for a while, I'm really grateful that you're here and excited for the new year of the podcast. And if you're new, like I said at the beginning, welcome. I hope that you linger, stick around, come back next week. And in the meantime, check out the archive. It's robust. (laughs) We are getting close to 400 episodes. And if you want to keep in touch In the meantime, I write a weekly newsletter called the Let It Out Letter, and it not only sends out the new episodes right to you with the show notes, including links to everything we talked about right to you, 
but it also includes a essay from me usually with what I'm pondering or learning and links to what I'm liking or listening to. And if you liked this conversation, share it with a friend, share it with someone else you think that would like it. It really helps the show and let me know where you were listening. What are you doing? Are you on a walk? Are you driving? Are you folding laundry? Let me know. I'm at Katie Dalebow on Instagram. And actually, the podcast itself has an Instagram. Let it out with three T's at the end. Would love to connect with you in both places. And if you're not already following our guest of honor, Joshua Jackson, he's a real delight to have in the feed, as well as his wife, Jody. And if you've been here for a while, you know that I do this thing at the end of each episode where I pick a secret emoji of the week to let us know that you're listening to the bitter end. <laughs> and I ask you to comment that on my Instagram, on the most recent photo or wherever you want, and our guest's Instagram. And it's like this little secret letting me know that you were here. <laughs> so this week, the emoji is the skull. And I was thinking about what to make the emoji. Usually I ask the guests, but to be honest, I forgot to ask him. But I was thinking maybe the hockey stick, because I know he likes hockey and, you know, Mighty Ducks. Or maybe the knife for Dr. Death. But I decided on the skull as a nod to my friend Simi, who loves his 2000 film, came out in the year 2000, The Skulls. If you haven't seen it, give it a watch. He portrays a senior at an Ivy League college who depends on scholarships and working on the side, and he gets accepted into a secret society, the Skulls, and basically drama ensues. We love it. I watched it with Simi. So check out the Skulls. Comment a skull emoji on my Instagram, on his Instagram, on Let It Out's Instagram. Let us know what you thought of this episode, if it made you think of anything, if it entertained you, if you learned something. I hope that you liked it. Check out all of his work, actually, new and old. And I'll leave you with this one quick announcement. I wrote a book a couple years ago about writing for emotional wellness, and I have a series of self-study online workshops that I call the Let It Out Kits, and they're filled with prompts and ideas that have helped me much of you know what we talk about in this podcast what I've learned from you know recording so many conversations and basically I put into them everything that's helped me with personal growing that I'm learning in real time and constantly adding to them so for the rest of the month I made a code just for you listening to this little bit at the end that most people have probably turned off <laughs> but the code is 22 spelled out and it will give you 22% out no dash just 22 for the year and the percentage off and you know I think it's relevant right now during this season where you know there's this collective pull towards trying new routines and even though I believe that time is made up and the new year really doesn't mean all that much but you know what why not use the collective optimistic momentum around us right now if you want to and I actually have a workshop that I used to teach in person every year before the pandemic and I 
love it a lot. <laughs> I, I did it at Kripalu, this retreat center in the Berkshires in Western Massachusetts. And it was called Remix Your Resolutions. I think I called it Resolution Reframe most recently. And, you know, the word resolution has always rubbed me the wrong way because it implies that we've done something wrong that we need to resolve. And this workshop is what I made up instead. And the best compliment to it is that my best friend told me she was doing it today. And I think that's the highest compliment and the highest review that I could give you. So now it's all online in a self-study format that you can do anytime. You could do it this month. You can do it next month. You can do it every month on your birthday, on the new moon or full moon. Anyway, that link is in the show notes. And if you have any questions on that or anything at all, or if you want to try it, email me. My email is katie at let it out with three T's or, you know, send me a DM on Instagram or, you know, get in touch with me. The discount code is 22 for 22% off of all the kits. The link to them is in the show notes. Thank you again so much for listening. I will talk to you next week. And in the meantime, happy 2022. My lucky number is 22. So I keep saying it's a good sign and it means that it's going to be a good year for me and all of my friends, which, you know, you're covered by that clause if you're listening to this right now. So, you know, congrats. But also, to be honest, like any year, it's going to be filled with joy and funny moments and good food and also, you know, sadness and hard moments and grief and a lot of between, a lot of medium. And I just, you know, I'm hoping for flexibility and to be able to increase my capacity for uncertainty and change. And like we talked about in this episode, you know, to lean into discomfort and learn and grow and just be around for whatever comes up really presently. All right. I will talk to you next week. I feel like I've been saying goodbye for about 10 minutes now. Okay. Talk to you next week. Love you. Thank you again for being here.